Good morning, everyone. Glad to see you all this Wednesday. I hope that all is well. We're going to open with a quick prayer, and then we're going to jump into chapter 6. The Lord be with you. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you today with grateful hearts, and we ask you to open us up to make space so that your spirit and your word may fill us and inspire us, that we may be transformed to grow closer to you day by day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Glad to see you all here this morning. We are in chapter 6 of Luke. Chapter 6, if you haven't noticed by this point, Luke is long-winded. His chapters are long, and there's a lot of stuff that happens. But before we get into that, a few technical things. If you are new with us, or if you have yet to get the little bookmark that we made with the schedule of classes, they are available on the tables both on the side door and the rear door on your way out. And also, I realize that I ask for questions occasionally during the study, and not everybody is going to be comfortable just shouting out a question. And so I want you to use the communications cards that are in the pew back, right? The regular ones that we use on a Sunday morning. Feel free to grab one of those cards and submit it. Um, And if you happen to grab a pledge card instead, well, you know, don't question God's spirit, all right? Communications cards can be found in your pews, and if if you don't have one there, then let us know. We'll grab one for you, or a piece of paper, whatever you want, to submit a question. And over the time that we spend together, I can go back and kind of flesh out some ideas as we go. And so that might be better for some than shouting out a question here in class. So, a little context as we get into chapter 6. Jesus has really begun his ministry at this point, right? We saw last week in chapter 5 that he really hit the ground in chapter 5, started to gain attention both from people who needed him, who needed to be healed or who were looking for a good word from God, and also for those who don't like what he says. He's getting attention both ways, good and bad. And in chapter 6, we continue with some of that, you know, somewhat bad attention. And so Jesus is being challenged in chapter 6, and he's having to respond to those challenges. And so again, we have three sections to chapter 6. The first section really focuses on the Sabbath, Jesus does some Sabbath teaching. The second section focuses on what we love, the Beatitudes. The third section is kind of a a collection of a lot of different teachings that I'm just going to call loving not judging. That will give us the roadmap for today's chapter 6. So let's jump in with Sabbath teachings. So we are all very familiar, I would imagine, with the idea of the Sabbath. The Sabbath is something rooted in the creation story, right? If we hearken back to Genesis, we know that God The story that we are told is that God created the world in six days, and on the seventh day, he rested. And so there has been this fundamental idea that rest is an important part of our life. 
But it wasn't really until the Exodus story, when Moses had taken the people out of Egypt, and they had crossed the Red Sea, and they were whining to him about being hungry, that the idea of rest was really instituted within the rhythm of life. And that happened when God provided manna in the wilderness, specifically in Exodus chapter 16. So when the Israelites are there in the wilderness and Moses replies to them and said, in the morning, you're going to see the dew, stuff that looks like dew, but it's bread, manna from heaven. And for six days, you'll be able to collect that bread. But on the sixth day, there will be twice as much because the seventh day, you will not be able to collect anything because that's the day of rest. And so we really root this idea of Sabbath as a specific day of rest to that Exodus 16 story with manna. Fast forward to Jesus's lifetime, and that Sabbath idea has really been fleshed out a lot. So just as it is today, Sabbath begins at sundown on a Friday and goes until sundown on Saturday, right? The Jewish calendar is a lunar calendar, and so it's sundown, it's not sunup like us. It's not quite timed the same way. And so that Friday night to Saturday night, Sabbath time, is where no work can be done. No work. There is no reason why pretty much any of you would know this, but when I was out of college and needed a summer job, I sold appliances at Sears. It was great fun. Um, I only worked 20 hours a week selling these appliances, but I outsold every other salesperson for three months who were full-time. And it's because I used to say that someone would walk into the store and they'd be looking for an oven. And so the other salespeople sold them an oven. But I sold them the vision of what their kitchen could be, right? <laughs> um, why I tell you that is because part of the training to sell appliances was that we had to learn about the appliances. And have you ever seen a Sabbath setting on an oven, right? If you haven't, the short of that is you can turn ovens nowadays and for, you know, probably for 20, 30 years at this point, have fail-safes where they will shut off after so long of being on. There is a Sabbath setting, however, on particularly electric ovens where it will stay on for 24 hours. And so what Jews nowadays, particularly Orthodox Jews, will do is they will have these ovens where they can turn it on before sundown on Friday and allow it to stay on through the Sabbath so that they can still eat, right? Even food preparation is really a no-no for particularly Orthodox Jews, right? So eating is one thing, but preparing the food to eat, no. And that's the context that we are in as Luke chapter six kicks off. Jesus has some disciples, right? And those disciples are following him around. And in essence, they kind of walk through a cornfield. And in that field, they're hungry. So they pick some corn and they eat some right off of the stalk, but it's the Sabbath. And so it's not a problem that they eat. What I love is it's not even a problem that they stole someone's corn. The real problem is that it's the Sabbath. They cannot prepare this food on the Sabbath. And in essence, them picking it and kind of rubbing it in their hands was a form of preparation. And so the Pharisees challenged Jesus for doing this kind of preparation, this work on the Sabbath. Jesus claims a precedent 
set by David. And he references this very obscure moment when David went into the temple to eat the bread of presence. The bread of presence was this special kind of food that was held in the temple that only the priests could eat. And if we remember back, King David, not a priest. But David is, for the Jews, this highly regarded figure, right? I mean, if you talk about the people who loom large in the Jewish tradition, it's Abraham, Moses, and David. Everybody else is second tier to those three people. And so for them, linking to David was almost like this automatic okay, right? Jesus creates a link to David as an acknowledgement of both David's authority So Jesus is using David's precedent and authority. But Jesus is also making a theological claim, right? It should not go over our heads that Jesus is representing this messianic presence, right? Linking back to David was important both in his genealogy, right? We know all the prophetic stuff that from the line of David will come the Messiah. And so Jesus is at once kind of going back to a an authority figure, but also this subtle continuation of that authority figure's authority to the present day. So Jesus claims that kind of mantle of David, not only genealogically or theologically, but also when it comes to the legal authority. Let's talk a second about what bread of presence could be, right? If we were to talk about the temple, right, the church, and I were to mention to you the bread of presence, what immediately comes to your mind? Yes, communion, right? There is this idea, you know, we often, and it's not our fault, Christians often kind of assume that all the stuff that we do, we sort of made up, right? But here's one of those moments where along with things like baptism, we did not make this up It was perhaps repurposed or tweaked or twisted in some way, but this bread of presence, there was an idea that there was a sacred bread, sacred food that was in the temple. And only those who were really able to be present in the temple, priests, could eat of this bread of God, right? That's really what this is, presence of God in this food. And so there is in essence, almost this push down of that authority, right? Where Jesus is saying, it's not just for you priests, it's for everybody, including me, including my disciples. Jesus is throughout this entire chapter, and really you can just put this as one of those little short lists of what Jesus is doing all the time, turning whatever system exists in the world upside down, right? All of the limits that the people in the authority have put around everyone else. Jesus is trying to break down, right? Those limits are gone, the walls are gone. He's saying, this is not for anybody who is extra special. It is for every person. And that kind of egalitarian style of grace is really what gives rise to a lot of the Christian theology of inclusivity for every person. Jesus goes on after he eats this grain on the Sabbath and cures a man's hand. This time, a different Sabbath day, 
and a different situation. Jesus is really in a sacred moment now. He's not just walking through a field, which by the way, you're not really supposed to walk anyway on the Sabbath. But, and I, I find that kind of funny. Um, for the Sabbath, you're, you're allowed to kind of travel, so to speak, if you are going to worship. Otherwise, you're really supposed to just kind of take it easy. I mean, it is intentional for you to rest, right? Um, when I moved to Memphis, we rented a house for a year, and one of the first people I met in the city was the rabbi from the big temple there who was, had long-time relationship with the church um, where I was going. And when I told him where we were living, he said, oh, that's in the wire. Are you familiar with the idea of a wire in Judaism, right? So in Orthodox Judaism, like, I mean, it's just human nature, take a rule that sounds good, and after you live in that rule for a while, you try to begin to stretch it and poke at it and figure out what really can we do within this rule. And one of those rules is within a sacred area, right? So like I told you, you can't travel on the Sabbath, but you can walk or travel, so to speak, if you're going to worship. Well, so is it only if you are moving toward worship spot, like the temple or the synagogue? Or is it that you can walk within the temple or the synagogue, kind of in the building, right? Or is it that you could walk on the property around the temple or the synagogue. And for that matter, isn't God a little bigger than just the parking lot and the grass around the synagogue? And so there was this sense of like, really how, what is sacred space, right? And there, if you lived right next to the synagogue, then your house is kind of close, right? So I mean, walking around your house is probably okay because you could kind of theoretically be walking to the synagogue, but maybe not quite, but if you needed to. So there's this sense that within a certain sphere of space, you could do some stuff that might be interpreted as work, but really isn't within that sacred space. And there was a physical wire that would be rung around an area that had the synagogue at the center. And so if you lived within that wire, a physical wire, then you were kind of within the sacred space. And so as communities were built around synagogues, the wire got a little bigger and a little bigger. And again, I reiterate, this is a physical piece of wire, okay? I happened to live close enough to an Orthodox synagogue in Memphis where I was within the wire. And so on the one hand, what was great about the people I was renting from is their property values were never gonna go down, right? Because there were plenty of Orthodox Jewish families who would pay a pretty premium to live within the wire. The other thing is that we had to definitely leave the neighborhood to see Christmas lights, you know? <laughs> All right, that's just a little aside. Again on the Sabbath, Jesus is confronted with a man whose hand is withered. Something has happened to this man's hand and he cannot use it anymore. And so Jesus looks at this man who has come to the synagogue, who has come to worship, and I just, I can imagine the scene that, you know, he takes this man's hand and just sort of heals it, right? What is healing? That's work. Can't work on the Sabbath. And so the Pharisees again challenge Jesus 
claiming that he is not following the law by healing on the Sabbath. And what does Jesus say? What is the problem with doing good, right? Should we not save a life when we can? Would the Sabbath actually prevent you from being kind, from being loving, from saving someone's life, if that were considered work? And of course, the implication is absolutely not. And what Jesus is doing, moment by moment by moment, is beginning to poke holes in this legalism, right? Broadly speaking, Jesus' message is that it's not the law that saves you. It is not the law that brings you closest to God. The law can be very good and helpful, giving us parameters around our human messiness. But if the law then becomes the primary way that you relate to God, you've gotten it backwards, right? The law is only helpful. It is not the way that you get to God. And so Jesus reiterates this over and over and over again. Don't let the law limit what is really meant to be godly. And this is a perfect little example of somebody needs help. You help them because helping someone is a much higher good than following the law of the Sabbath. What matters most is the presence of God and the inbreaking of the Spirit to transform our world. Jesus hits this over and over and over again. Different examples, different moments, different words, but it's that universal theme. God's doing something in the world. And if we create too dense a box around our life, God will not be able to break through to us. And it's really about us in relationship with God. A quick note, as a preacher or a teacher, and it's really for all of us, it is very easy for us to turn Christian ideas into something that sounds anti-Semitic. And so I just kind of note to you, as you do a Bible study, right, or as you do anything, to always kind of question how you articulate a Christian faith, right? Because there is nothing about Jesus that is anti-Jewish. What Jesus is doing is trying to invite a more whole way of seeing what God has been doing, right? The world that Jesus lives in is a world that is extremely black and white and literal, but it's not because people didn't intend good. If we imagine the arc of God's salvation story with humanity, it starts way back at the very beginning, but it really takes root with Abraham. And what God is saying to all these people over time, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Moses, David, on and on, is that God wants us. Right? God doesn't want our rules or our good behavior. God wants all of us. But as we do, we like to define what that means. And Christian groups have done this, you know, in every possible way, just like the Jewish people did it way back when. And if we really read Jesus with as much authenticity as possible, Jesus loves the mess. He doesn't like the rules. 
but we like rules. And so there's, this all, there's always this give and take with enough rules to keep us in line, but not so many that it keeps us away from God. So just a little note. All right. Any questions about this first section before we get into kind of the good stuff, the Beatitudes? The middle section of chapter six is the Beatitudes. What you will note is that this, these are not Matthew's Beatitudes. Most of the time, if you do the Beatitudes in, you know, if you see a, a framed picture or something like that of the Beatitudes. Or thank you, these windows, really? Are these Matthew Beatitudes? Are Matthew. Okay. So one difference that you will see is that in Luke we hear, blessed are you who are poor. What's the other version of this? Poor in spirit, right? We have two looks at the same story. And the gospels do not do the same thing. Luke's gospel is not blessed are you who are poor in spirit. Luke's gospel is, blessed are you who are poor, period. Actually, not period. He keeps, it's comma. But that is all he is saying. It is important for us to use the context we have at the beginning and the end of chapter 6 in order to understand what Jesus is really saying, or better, more articulately, to, to see what Luke is really trying to communicate, Right? If I haven't said this before, I remember learning in college that the four Gospels are like portraits of the same person, right? They are not like photographs. We tend to think like photographs, where there is a, a truism about a photograph. That is the way it looked. But a portrait is something different. There is something interpretive, right? In a portrait of someone, you know the subject. A good portrait, you know who it is. You know probably where they were. But a really good artist is telling you something about that person in the way they choose to emphasize through colors or shadows or backgrounds. And that's what the gospel writers really are, is they are artists painting a portrait. They're not journalists taking a photograph. And so here's a great example of the artist Luke versus the artist Matthew are emphasizing something different about these words of Jesus. The other thing to note is that any good preacher says the same thing over and over and over and over again, right? I mean, many people often say that, you know, preachers basically have one sermon, and they just do the same thing over and over and over again, which is, you know, maybe that's true. I don't know. Um, Jesus likely gave this lecture or this sermon over and over and over and over, and he may have done it differently depending on who was there, depending on what he just did or who he just argued with or where he just slept that night. I mean, who knows? And so it could be that Matthew and Luke are recounting to different versions of this sermon. Regardless of how it came to be, their words are slightly different. And so I do want to note what I think Luke is trying to communicate with these words. 
before we get to the Beatitudes, the experience that Jesus has is one that focuses, focuses on the outcasts. So how we got here with these Sabbath teachings is that moment by moment by moment, Jesus is with the people who do not have any power or authority or money or good education. He's with the people who are outside the sphere of power. So when he gets to the Beatitudes, he is talking to those outcast people. When he says, blessed are the poor, he's not talking poor in spirit. We like poor in spirit, right? We like those beatitudes because if we're very honest, we're not poor, right? Certainly we have different levels of wealth, but in the world, none of us are poor, not even close. And so blessed are the poor in spirit. Oh, because I'm poor in spirit. Thank you, Jesus. You know. <laughs> no. Luke says, blessed are the poor. And it is very important for us to note the difference. Jesus says, blessed are the poor. Blessed are the hungry. Those who are hungry now, not just hungry ever. Blessed are those who weep Blessed are those when people hate you. It's important for us to understand that Jesus is not talking to the people like us in this passage. That's hard to hear because we like Jesus. Jesus is our friend. But in this passage and these Beatitudes, the first four blessings are on people who are outcast. It's the next four woes that are probably a bit more for us. Woe to you who are rich. Woe to you who are full. Woe to you who are laughing. Woe to you when people speak well of you. Dang. Now, we can twist this poetically as much as we want, but I think there is something very real about understanding that Jesus is overturning a system that takes advantage of most. He is in a system in a point in time where there are a few people who have the authority, the power, the comfort, and the wealth, and most people do not. We may not see those most people most of the time, but do not confuse that we, everyone in here, is part of the group today who has the power, the wealth, the authority, and the comfort. And so Jesus's words today should sting us a little bit. And certainly, theologically speaking, Jesus is not truly cursing us. But what Jesus is really trying to say is all the stuff we like, all the stuff, the good things people say to us is of this world. And it is most easy for people like us 
to not need what Jesus is offering because we have a sense of security and a sense of fulfillment and a sense of joy and happiness and comfort that we think we did ourselves. And if we are not careful, then what Jesus actually brings becomes simply moral platitudes. Jesus is teaching us how to be polite. No, not the case. In fact, I often with youth say, we like this buddy Jesus, like Jesus, my friend. Jesus is not your friend. Jesus is your savior. Jesus is not our buddy. Jesus is something a lot better than that. But if we don't need anything better than that, then Jesus becomes just this nice person. I've said this before, I don't think in here, but I can remember hearing people, particularly in my childhood, hearing people refer to others as good Christian people, right? What a good Christian woman, what a good Christian man. And it confused me because Jesus is kind of a, you know, mean often, right? Jesus is not polite almost ever, right? I mean, honestly, find me a story where you could actually say Jesus was nice, right? Jesus is not. Jesus is pushy and demanding. He has expectations that most people don't meet, and when they don't, he says, sorry. That is not the kind of person most of us would say is a good Christian person. And so where have we gotten confused? Mostly we are confused because we don't really get from Jesus what most of the world needs from him because we're kind of good, right? I mean, honestly, what are we being saved from? What happens with us is what I'm sure happens with, you know, everyone in this room at some point, something bad happens, right? Whatever that something bad is. When we're younger, maybe it's a breakup. When we're a little older, maybe we lose our job. When we're older, maybe someone gets sick, a loved one dies, maybe it's us. When something bad happens, then all of a sudden we're like, huh, wait a minute. Maybe I kind of get what Jesus was talking about. For most people around the world, it's when something good happens that it's the exception. Illness, poverty, hunger, insecurity is every day. And so the story of Jesus makes a lot of sense. It's for people like us where we can miss the point and make Jesus nice if we're not careful. As I was preparing this, I kind of thought about the idea, have you all heard of homeless Jesus? It was a thing about mm, five years ago or so where an artist, let me see, I wrote, I wrote down his name, hold on. Timothy Schmaltz, <laughs> that's unfortunate. Timothy, <laughs> he's a Canadian sculptor, a devout Catholic, and he conceived of a statue of homeless Jesus and found a church, an Episcopal church in Davidson, North Carolina, St. Albans, who commissioned him to create this statue and put it out in front of the church. I, hap I happen to have found a model of it. This is the model, but the statue that he created is full size, full human size. 
And it's a bench with a casting of what looks like a homeless person asleep on the bench. And if you get up close to it, you can see the stigmata in the hands and feet. So you can kind of figure it out. I know you can't really see this back there, but I keep this on my shelf in my office because this was a very, mm, it was the uh, response of the community in North Carolina was, shall I say, mixed. <laughs> some people, let me see, I actually found some quotes here of what people said. The rector of that church said that it gives authenticity to the church because it's a relatively affluent church. And to be honest, we need to be reminded ourselves that our faith expresses itself in active concern for the most vulnerable and marginalized in our society. Other people, though, did not like this. People were quoted as saying that it's an insulting depiction of Jesus, that it demeans his goodness, that it ruins the neighborhood, <laughs> and people said that it creeped them out. My response to that is good. We can be too settled with Jesus, right? Have I told, have I explained to you all the Mount of Olives and its relationship with the temple? We'll get there in the story of Luke, but we all know that Jesus walked around and taught a lot. And when I went to the Holy Land for the first time and was standing on the Mount of Olives, I realized that the Mount of Olives is over here and the temple is like right there. And there's the Kidron Valley, which I thought would have been massive, and it's nothing. It's basically like a little hill. And you go down the Kidron Valley and right up, and the temple is right over there. And I have to think, as the crow flies, maybe four or 500 yards, right? Not that far. Point being, when Jesus is up and around on the Mount of Olives, bringing people around him and teaching them and doing this stuff that is very subversive, he was doing a lot of it right under the nose of the priests in the temple, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. This wasn't always this thing happening way away that they heard about. Jesus was parading his people right outside their door. And as I stood there, I thought, dang, you know, he is a rabble rouser. He was not looking to be some kind of mystic hermit out in the middle of nowhere. He was causing problems. And if we sanitize him too much, and we expect that what he was doing was within the status quo, we really miss the point. And in chapter six, we get this nugget, this moment, where we're able to really see what Jesus is up to. Jesus is, you know, I like to say turning it upside down, but perhaps what Jesus is really doing is turning the kingdom right side up. The way that humans had differentiated and stratified each other into classes is not okay because there is nothing that we do to earn grace. And it is really because we are given it freely that it is our responsibility to give it freely to everyone else. Okay, before I kind of get more preachy, any questions about this? I skipped over the disciples. I'll note that in just a second. Questions or thoughts? 
I'll put words in some of your mouths then. This probably does not feel good to many. And that's okay. I want you to be confident enough to kind of wrestle with what doesn't feel good, right? This is certainly not going to be the cheerleading day of Bible study that some will be. Rather than pushing down or repressing or ignoring whatever's kind of not feeling super settled in you, think on it and pray on it. Go back and reread this chapter. Try to flesh out some of the ideas that Jesus is proposing and figure out what it is about what you are doing that doesn't quite seem to line up, right? None of us are really lining up with what Jesus is asking of us, right? Me included. And it's always a good reminder, a good nudge, so to speak, to imagine what we do and what we might shift, tweak, or twist a little bit to get just a little closer to what Jesus is calling us, right? That's the point of church. You can't be Christian by yourself, right? It's not magic. We need one another because it's through our relationships with one another, the honesty that we have with one another, and the vulnerability of being imperfect, where we actually kind of mold one another into being the kind of faithful people we actually want to be. And so don't, don't let that awkwardness go away too easily. You know, wrestle with it a little bit, and then see what comes of it. So Jesus, just before the Beatitudes, does something that I think is really is a good note, and it's not something we need to really talk about, but Jesus decides, calls, names, taps, whatever word you want to use, 12 of his disciples to become apostles. And so just a quick note on what that really means. I used to use apostles and disciples interchangeably, right? Same basic word. There is a subtle difference. Disciples are learners. Disciples are students, right? If you are someone's disciple, you are trying to absorb the knowledge and the experience of a teacher. If you are an apostle, you are actually taking that knowledge and that teaching and giving it out. You're, in essence, becoming a teacher yourself. What that means is that all apostles are disciples, but most disciples are not apostles, right? And so there are some disciples of Jesus's that really almost graduate to become teachers themselves, and they will be. They won't really until Jesus is gone, but these 12 become the principal teachers and preachers of the church after Jesus' resurrection. And of course, they raise up their own disciples and then empower those disciples, some of those to become apostles themselves. And that's the way that the church has existed for 2,000 years. And so there is a difference between a disciple and an apostle. Jesus is also naming 12. Why 12? It's a, it's a holy number, yes. But it harkens back to what? the 12 tribes. Jesus is almost creating a new Israel with these 12 apostles, right? Now, you can read a little too much into that, but I do not think that it is 
an accident that there are multiple holy numbers, 12 is one of them, but he could have very easily called, tapped 40 of the disciples to be apostles, but he taps 12. And at this core moment of his beginning, his ministry beginning, it is not an accident that those 12 can be linked back to the 12 tribes of Israel. There is a new creation in this moment, and we get it even in that numbering. All right, so finally we go to part three. Loving, not judging. This is just a series of stories, right? A series of parables and other kinds of teachings. Each one could really stand alone. You could do a Bible study on every single one of these easily. So I kind of just wrapped them together and say, go read them if you haven't. Um, but there are multiple different stories here that are great. Big macro message is that Jesus is not looking to replace one set of rules with another set of rules, right? As we said earlier, one way to interpret Jesus's whole mission is to lower the importance of rules in everyone's faith life. And so he's not just simply saying, hey, you've been doing this, now I want you to do that. It's not that easy. It's not a one-to-one. -one. Instead, what Jesus is really saying is God is like this, and I want you to be like that too. And so in this series of stories, Jesus is setting up a paradigm that does not make sense to our human condition. Jesus is setting up a paradigm that we are to love our enemies. Doesn't, it's totally counterintuitive. That we are to bear good fruit, which might sound a little bit better, that we are to plant our houses on a solid foundation, and that Jesus wants for us to forgive those who hurt us. Loving our enemies, forgiving those who hurt us, is very counterintuitive. And so we'll take each for just a minute. Loving our enemies is really about the complete freeness of grace. Grace is free to everyone. I like to say grace is free, it's not cheap, but it is free. Everyone can come within the graceful arms of Christ. And because that grace is free, we are called to give it away as well. And we do that sort of thing when we forgive those who hurt us. Forgiveness might just be the hardest Christian concept. Loving kind of makes sense because we're, we're able, at least in my experience, people are able to embrace the complexity of love. Like loving someone who doesn't love you back seems to be easier for people to do, right? Maybe that's because so many people have been parents. <laughs> um, but there is this idea that we can love someone even if they don't love us. That seems to at least be, you know, we can conceive of it. Forgiving people? Oh my goodness. This is hard stuff. Nobody likes to forgive someone who doesn't, what, deserve it, right? Or 
who isn't sorry. Oh my gosh, I hear that all the time, right? If you're okay to forgive somebody if they're sorry for what they did to hurt you, but if they're not sorry, <laughs> no. <laughs> Holding that hurt inside does not really hurt the other person back. Holding that hurt inside really just continues to perpetuate the hurt in you. And so one of the things I say all the time is you don't forgive someone because they deserve it. You forgive someone because you do. Forgiveness is about those who have been hurt. And if you've ever read much about anything when it comes to like big corporate forgiveness, right? We saw this in the truth and reconciliation trials in South Africa, right? There is, there is no, you cannot really in a human sense recover from some kinds of hurts, right? But the person who was hurt, who received the offense, can in order for them to be healed, forgive the person who did the hurt. There's nothing to do with the person who did the hurt. It's about you. And so this for idea of forgiveness is huge and hard. And Jesus really kind of drills in that God does this for us. If we take those two ideas of love and forgiveness and put them side by side, we have this idea, this theology, that God forgives us. There is nothing that we can do to make up for bad stuff that we have done as far as God is concerned. But we are forgiven anyway because we are loved. And it is these two ideas that probably if, if we could figure those two things out, then the rest of it's just icing. If we could figure out the love and forgiveness stuff, then everything else we do is just really kind of window dressing. It is really hard. And Jesus will hit this over and over and over again in other parables. He uses a few different metaphors here to also talk about why we need God. So there is this idea of grace and love and forgiveness to be done by us because God loves and forgives us first. But then there is this sense that we need for our trust to be put in this truth. It's easy for us who may have accepted that God is real and true to hear things like love and forgiveness and want to aspire to it. But for many other people, most people, the idea that God is, is, is for real, is true, has not yet clicked. Like God's, that sounds good, right? And church is nice. These people are nice. Bible studies not a waste of time. Let's just do it. But if we've not really figured out that God is real and true, then we will find that all these nice things we do, even if it looks very Christian, will be for nothing. And so in that really kind of significant example that he gives, the parable of the person who builds their house, one builds their house on rock, 
and one builds their house on, according to Luke, it's the ground, but what else do we know that? Sand. That's Matthew. All right. In Luke, it's rock and ground. In Matthew, it's rock and sand. Same difference. There is the rock and the foundation, solid, of God. And then there is the moving, unstable foundation of the world. It's our pick. If we don't choose the rock, something bad's going to happen. And we're going to be lost because we do not have that foundation. How many people have you known who, when the bad thing happened, they were simply filled with grace, right? Confidence and peace. And people look on the outside in and they say, they're incredible. How strong they are. No, it's not about them. It's because for them, the rock, their own foundation, has been right from the start. And for others, it's when the stuff gets hard that we may discover that perhaps the foundation has not been the strength we were looking for. And we have an opportunity to recorrect ourselves, right? That's the whole idea. We can do this at any time. We'll hear more parables about how people come late to the party and they can still get in, or they come late to the fields and they still get paid. We'll see all these things come. And it's people like us who've been doing it right for a long time that don't like those parables because we've kind of done it better for longer, right? But that deathbed confessional kind of moment, even though we may not like it, that's what God gives us. And so we've got this example of the rock, right? And Luke sets up the idea of a rock. Why? It becomes the church as the rock. And it is not an accident, again, that Peter, as the lead apostle, will end up being described as the rock. We have five minutes for any questions or thoughts clarity. I didn't mention the whole blind leading the blind. That comes from chapter 6 of Luke. There are lots of things that people say are in the Bible that aren't. That happens to be one that is. So you can, you can start a little, you know, note in your notebooks, you know, what is biblical and what is not. And so, you know, we won't get, God won't give us more than we can handle. Not biblical. Yes. Well, that was very softball, wasn't it? Um, so the comment is, Jesus has been described as a revolutionary. Some call him a communist. Thoughts? Um, so, thanks a lot. Um, I don't have enough time for this. Um, okay, give me a few minutes here. The idea that Jesus was a revolutionary for sure I don't know that anybody really would argue with that. Um, rabble rouser, revolutionary, you know, however you want to say that, that is true. Um, and even though the portraits in the Gospels may not depict him fully in that way, when you add things like what I just noted, you know, the geography and the topography and, and the way that people moved around each other, then the stuff that they're describing in here 
becomes a lot more vivid and his kind of revolutionary behavior seems more apparent, right? Certainly, there is no question that Jesus is not a communist. If for no other reason, then communism is a philosophical approach to living that did not exist at this time. So you can't use that word to describe him. So what perhaps people may mean when they say something like that is more of a socialist. Socialist. So to that end... Jesus is extremely communal. There is not a sense of a capitalistic style of dog-eat-dog with Jesus at all. There is zero evidence that Jesus would have liked the kind of system we live in where if you're just better, stronger, faster, smarter, that you get more. That is not kingdom economy. It's not. It does not mean that we can't use that kind of worldly economy for the good, but we should never confuse that a capitalistic style world that we live in is somehow Jesus approved. No. And if anyone ever articulates that, which is which is why for some people, the idea of yoking Christian faith with any kind of political identity at all is, is really dangerous, right? And so I'll use what happened Sunday night as an example, right? So we do a Veterans Day service here, right? And it is valid that people would criticize the service on Sunday night here as really going too far afield of what a Christian church should be, right? Because it is not simply the presence of national identity, but it's a celebration of it within a church. That criticism is valid. However, what we did had intentionality to it because the songs that we sang were songs that articulated a theology of dependence on God and not really one another. And I think that if we ignore a national identity, then we're actually differentiating ourselves to such a degree that it's difficult for most people to find their way to what the core truth really is. We are, I can't, I can't necessarily say we are all Americans, but that's probably the case. You know, we are all Americans living in America. Most of us were probably born here. It's what we know. If we don't acknowledge and use that identity to help create a bridge to a different kind of life, then we are not telling the story in a way that is accessible enough. I don't mean for this to be overwrought, but I think that there is, we cannot defend a system in which some people get more and more 
while others do not and say that's Christian. We can use that system to generously love and care for those in need. And that's the balance I think we strike, particularly in a church like this, where we have benefited from that system to make sure that that system does not become for us God, that we understand our vulnerability, our insecurity, and our infallibility in front of God, and that God's perfection can work through us to use all of the strengths we have for those who are weak, hungry, poor, and vulnerable. Sound okay? <laughs> and we're done. All right. Thank you all. No class tomorrow, next week. All right. No class next week. I will see you in two weeks after Thanksgiving. Happy Thanksgiving. <laughs>